Welcome to the Mendocino Theatre Company's Reading on the Radio. I'm Pamela Allen, MTC's Executive Director. And I'm Lori LaPaul. Good evening, everyone. I directed tonight's reading. Tonight, we present Tickless Time, a lighthearted and, I think, surprisingly relevant comedic satire from 1918, written by the Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Susan Glaspell and her husband George Cram Cook, two of the founding members of the Provincetown Players. The Provincetown Players was a collective of artists, writers, intellectuals, really Greenwich Village bohemians who spent their summers in Provincetown Cape Cod. The group included several soon-to-be-famous playwrights and poets, among them Edna of St. Vincent Millay and Eugene O'Neill, as well as Glaspell herself. This group was really disillusioned by the commercialism of Broadway at the time, and through their work, they ushered in the modern era of American theater. Tickless Time is a satirical examination of the idea of true time that apparently emerged from discussions between Glaspell and Cook in the summer of 1918. In her book, The Road to the Temple, Glaspell wrote that Cook set about to create a sundial for the garden of their Provincetown home, which was a column of four images of Glaspell naked. <laughs> Discussions about what it would mean to live by true time and how living by it would set them against society, and also what the consequences of that might mean, ensued. This was the origin of the play, which appeared that fall in the second production of the Provincetown Playhouse's 1918-1919 season, along with a little-known one-act by Eugene O'Neill. So, Pamela, this is the third play from Susan Glaspell that we've broadcast for the radio. I'm curious, what excites you about this playwright? Well, Laurie, I do have a fondness for Glaspell's work, and I'm not exactly sure why. I mean, she's brilliant, and her writing is so concise. But I think some of my fondness comes from the connection to Provincetown itself. I was born on Cape Cod and spent a lot of time in Provincetown. Some of my fondest memories are of the Provincetown home, where my grandfather, who was an artist, lived and worked for 40 years. When I first read Tickless Time, I imagined it taking place in the lovely seaside garden of my grandparents' home on Commercial Street, which looks a lot like the garden at the old Glassville home. This group of artists loved really to make fun of themselves. <laughs> this That's... definitely happens in this play. There's, <laughs> there's some wonderful comic wit and satire. Uh... Yeah, it's, it's, it's great fun, this one. And we really hope that everyone out there enjoys it. And without further ado, I would like to introduce Tickless Time by Susan Glaspell and George Cramwell Cook, directed by Lori LaPaul, featuring Scott Menzies, Laura Pinu, Pamela W. Allen, Lori LaPaul, Ken Krause, and Laurel Livesey. The piece is narrated by Sarah Rose, with sound production and design by Ken Krause. It is the summer of 1918. We are in the lovely garden of the summer home of Ian and Eloise Joyce in Provincetown, Cape Cod. A sundial stands on a broad pedestal in the middle of the garden. From behind a tree on the left, the late afternoon sun throws a well-defined beam of light upon the sundial and upon the shaft which supports it. On the shaft is a diagram with a curvy line representing shadow time. This line resembles a snake. On the plate of the sundial stands an alarm clock. A large shovel leans against the fence. 
Ian is at the sundial, sighting over the stile to mark the north. He then checks the east and west line towards the six o'clock sun. He looks at the shadow, then at the alarm clock. He is intensely pleased. Eloise! Oh, Eloise! Hello? Come quick, you'll miss it! What is it? Come down here quick or you'll miss it! Where is it? Where's what? Uh, the airplane. Airplane? It it's the sundial. It's right. Just look at this six o'clock shadow. It's absolutely, mathematically, you're in the way of the sun, Eloise. Look, the style is set square on the true north. This is the 15th of June. The clock is checked to the second by telegraph with the observatory at Washington. And see, the clock is exactly 19 minutes and 20 seconds behind the shadow. The precise difference between Provincetown local time and standard Eastern time. Then the sundial's really finished and working right after all these weeks. Oh, Ian. It's good to get it right after all those mistakes. Why, Eloise, getting this right has been a symbol of man's whole search for truth. The discovery and correction of error. The mind compelled to conform step by step to astronomical fact, to truth. And to think that it's the sundial which is true and the clock, all the clocks, are wrong. I'm glad it is true. Alice Knight has been here talking to me for an hour. I want to think that something's true. That's just it, Eloise. The sundial is more than sundial. It's a first-hand relation with truth, a personal relation. When you take your time from a clock, you are mechanically getting information from a machine. You're nothing but a clock yourself. Like Alice Knight. But the sundial, this shadow, is an original document, a scholar's source. To tell time by the shadow of the sun. So large and simple. I wouldn't call it simple. Here on this diagram I have worked out. Dearest, you, you know I can't understand diagrams, but I get the feeling of it, Ian. The sun, the North Star. I love to think that this is set by the North Star. Why, if I could go on long enough, I'd get to the North Star. The line that passes along the edge of this style joins the two poles of the heavens. Oh. Here, uh, look at this shadow. A and what you see is the spin of the Earth on its axis. It's not so much the measure of time as time itself made visible. Ian, which do you think is more wonderful, space or time? Both are a little large for our approbation. Do you know, Ian, that's the one thing about them I don't quite like. You can't get very intimate with them, can you? They make you so humble. That's one nice thing about a clock. A clock is sometimes wrong. Don't you want to live in a first-hand relation to truth? Yes. Yes, I do, generally. I have a feeling as of having touched vast forces. To work directly with worlds, it lifts me out of that little routine of our lives, which is itself a clock. Let us be like this. Let us have done with clocks. Eloise, how wonderful. Can the clocks and live by the sundial? Live by the non-automatic sundial as a pledge that we ourselves refuse to be automatons. Like Alice Knight. She takes the clock from the dial and puts it face down on the ground. I shall never again have anything to do with a clock. Eloise, how corking of you. I didn't think you had it in you. <clears throat> do you solemnly swear to live by the truth, the whole truth, 
and nothing but the truth? I swear. Bring them! Bring? The clocks. Bring them! Ian seizes the spade and begins to dig a grave behind the sundial. Bring everyone! We will bury the clocks before the sundial, an offering, a living sacrifice. I tell you, this is great, Eloise. What is a clock? Something agreed upon and arbitrarily imposed upon us. Standard time, not true time. Symbolizing the whole standardization of our lives. Clocks. Why, it is clockiness that makes America mechanical and mean. Clock-minded. A clock is a little machine that shuts us out from the wonder of time. Who thinks of spinning worlds when looking at a clock? How dare clocks do this to us? But the sundial, because there was creation, because there are worlds outside our world, because space is rhythm and time is the flow, that shadow falls precisely there and not elsewhere. Bring them, Eloise. I am digging the graves of the clocks. Eloise is swept up by this ecstasy. She hesitates a moment and then runs into the house. That damned cuckoo! Eloise comes out bearing the cuckoo clock and an old-fashioned clock. As she passes the alarm clock on the ground, she hesitates. Then, carefully holding the other two clocks in one arm, she stealthily places the alarm clock behind the sunflowers. Into these graves go all that is clock-like in our own minds. All that a clock world has made of us lies buried here. Eloise stands appalled at the idea of so much of herself going into a grave. She puts the old-fashioned clock carefully on the ground, puts the cuckoo clock into the completed grave. With an exclamation of horror, she lifts it out of the grave, listens to it tick, puts her ear to the sundial, listens vainly. The sundial doesn't tick, does it, Ian? Why should it tick? Do you know, Ian, I, I like to hear the ticking of a clock. This cuckoo clock was a wedding present. No wonder marriage fails. <laughs> I wonder if we hadn't better leave the cuckoo until tomorrow. Flaming worlds! A cuckoo! Eddie and Alice gave us the cuckoo. You know they're coming back. I asked them for dinner. They might not understand our burying their clock. Their failure to understand need not limit our lives. Ian puts the cuckoo clock in its grave and begins to cover it. I liked the cuckoo. I like to see him popping out. You will grow, Eloise. You will go out to large things now that you have done with small ones. I hope so. It will be hard on me if I don't. As Ian reaches for the other clock, Eloise snatches it. Oh, Ian, I I don't think I ought to bury this one. It's the clock my grandmother started housekeeping with. And see what it did to her, meticulous old woman. I shall put it in the grave. You were glad enough to get her pies and buckwheat cakes. She had all the small virtues, but a standardized mind. She lacked scope. And now, a little grave for little clocks. Here's my watch, and now your watch, Eloise. Uh, I I thought I'd keep my watch, Ian, uh, for an ornament, you know. We are going to let truth be your ornament, Eloise. Nobody sees truth. This watch was my graduation present. Symbolizing all the standardized, arbitrary things you were taught. Commemorating the clock-like way your mind was made to run. Free yourself from that watch, Eloise. Thank you. Now, is there anything else for this grave? Sure, the alarm clock. Oh, Ian, not the alarm clock. 
How would we ever get to Boston? The train doesn't run by the sun. Then the train is wrong. But Ian, if the train is wrong, we have to be wrong to catch the train. That's civilization. The alarm clock, Eloise, the grave, awaits it. No, I wanted to go to Boston and buy a hat. The sun will fall upon your dear head and give you life. But no style. It ticks so loud and sure. All false things are loud and sure. I need a tick. I am afraid of tickless time. You will grow, Eloise. You are growing. Ian takes the clock, and Eloise watches with surprised and helpless eyes as he buries it. Ian, couldn't you fix the sundial to be set and go off? Set and go off? Sine, sole, sileo. What did you say, Ian? I said, sine, sole, sileo. Well, I don't know what you say when you say that. It's a Latin motto I've just thought of for the sundial. It means, without sun, I am silent. Silence is a great virtue. Now we are freed. Eloise, think what life is going to be. Done with approximations. Done with machine thinking. In a world content with false time, we are true. Yes, it's beautiful. I, I want to be true. It's just that it's a little hard to be true in a false world. For instance, Tomorrow, I have an appointment with the dentist. If I come on sometime, I suppose I'll, I'll be 20 minutes... If you will just let me explain this table... Oh, well, tell him you are living by the truth. I'm afraid he'll charge me for it. And when we ask people for dinner at 7, they'll get here at 20 minutes of 7, or, or will it be 20 minutes after 7? It will be a part of eternal time. Yes, that's true. Only the roast isn't so eternal. Why do they have clocks wrong? Oh, Eloise, I've explained it so many times. You, living in Provincetown, 300 miles to the eastward, are living by the mean solar time of Philadelphia. Do you want to live by the mean solar time of Philadelphia? Certainly not. Then has Philadelphia got the right time? It's right six miles this side of Philadelphia. We might move to Philadelphia. Mrs. Stubbs, a Provincetown native, enters the garden. Now, Mr. Joyce, the sun clock, is it running? It doesn't run, Mrs. Stubbs. It is acted upon. Oh. Well, is it being acted upon? As surely as the sun shines. And it is shining today, isn't it? Well, will you tell me the time my clock has stopped and I want to set it? You hear, Eloise? Her clock has stopped. Yes, I forgot to wind it. Wind it! Do you not see, Mrs. Stubbs, where the shadow falls? From its millions of spinning... Um, you're in the way of the sun, Mrs. Stubbs. It's millions of spinning miles the sun casts that shadow. And here we know that it is eight minutes past six. Now, ain't that wonderful? Dear, dear, I wish Mr. Stubbs could make a sun clock. But he's not handy around the house. Past six. Well, I must hurry back. They work tonight at the cold storage, but Mr. Stubbs gets home for his supper at half past six. Oh, Mrs. Stubbs, don't get his supper by suntime. It wouldn't be ready. It, it might get cold. You see, Mr. Stubbs is coming home by the mean solar time of Philadelphia. Who said he was? Oh, it's also false and arbitrary. But, but Ian, I think Mrs. Stubbs had better be false and arbitrary, too. Mr. Stubbs might rather have his supper than the truth. What is this about my being false and arbitrary? You see, you have to be, Mrs. Stubbs. We don't blame you. 
How can you live by the truth if Mr. Stubbs doesn't work by it? This is the first word I have ever heard said against Johnny Stubbs' way of freezing fish. Oh, Mrs. Stubbs, if it were merely his way of freezing fish. Mrs. Stubbs, since you are not trying to establish a direct relation with truth, set your clock at five minutes of six. The clocks, as would be clear to you if you would establish a first-hand relation to this diagram, Eloise, are slow. You mean your sun clock's wrong. All other clocks are wrong. You live by the mean solar time of Philadelphia. I do no such thing. Yes, you do, Mrs. Stubbs. You see, the sun can't be both here and in Philadelphia at the same time. Now, could it? So we have to pretend to be where it is in Philadelphia. Who said we did? Well, uh, the government. Mm, them congressmen. But Mr. Joyce and I... Oh, you're standing on a grave, Mrs. Stubbs. Oh! The grave of my grandmother's clock. Oh, yes, that clock has done harm enough. Mrs. Stubbs, think what time is, and then consider my grandmother's clock. Tick, 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 messing up eternity like that. I must get Mr. Stubbs his supper. Eloise, how I love you when feeling lifts you out of routine. Do you know, dearest, you are very sensitive in the way you feel feeling? Sometimes I think that to feel feeling is greater than to feel. You're like the dial. Your sensitiveness is the style, the gnomon, to cast the shadow of the feeling all around you and mark what has been felt. Ian and Eloise embrace. Eddie and Alice, friends of the couple, come into the garden. Hmm. Hmm. Um, we seem to have come ahead of time. Oh, Eddie. Alice. We're living by sun time now. You haven't arrived for 20 minutes. We haven't arrived for 20 minutes? Why do I seem to be here? So this is the famous sundial. How very interesting it is. It's more than that. Yes, it's really beautiful, isn't it? It's more than that. Is it? It's a symbol. It means that Ian and I are done with approximations arbitrarily and falsely imposed upon us. Well, I should think you would be. Who's been doing that to you? Oh, don't step on the graves, please, Alice. <gasps> Graves? The lies we inherited lie buried there. Well, I should think that might be quite a graveyard. So the sundial is built on lies. Oh, indeed it is not. Does it keep time? It doesn't keep time. It gives it. Well, it gives it wrong. It's 20 minutes fast. Ian and Eloise smile at one another in a superior way. You couldn't expect a homemade clock to be perfectly accurate. I think it's doing very well to come within 20 minutes of the true time. It is the true time. You think it's 20 minutes fast because your puny, meticulous little watch is 20 minutes slow. Why, is it, Eddie? No, Eddie's watch is right by mine. And neither of you is right by the truth. Don't you know that you are running by the mean solar time of Philadelphia? Well, isn't everybody else running that way? Does that make it right? I get you. You are going to cast off standard time and live by solar time. Lies for truth. But how are you going to connect up with other people? We can allow for their mistakes. We will connect with other people insofar as other people are capable of connecting with the truth. I'm afraid you'll be awful lonesome sometimes. But Eloise, do you mean to say that you are going to insist on being right when other people are wrong? I insist upon it. What a life. Come now, what difference does it make if we're wrong, if we're all wrong together? That idea has made a clock of the human mind. 
Annie, the Joyce's cook, enters from the kitchen. Mrs. Joyce, can I have my clock back now? I don't know when to start dinner. By true time, Annie, it is 20 minutes past six. By false time, it is six. I have to have my kitchen clock back. We are done with clocks, Annie. You mean I'm not to have it back? It lies buried there. Buried? My clock's buried? It's not dead. It's dead to us, Annie. Do I get a new clock? We are going to establish a first-hand relation with truth. You can't cook without a clock. A superstition. And anyway, have you not the sun? Annie looks up at the sun, wondering what Ian is talking about. I'd rather have a clock than the sun. That's what clocks have made of the human mind. Ian, of course, this is all a joke. The attempt to reach truth has always been thought a joke. But this isn't any new truth. Why re-reach it? I'm reaching it myself. I'm getting the impact as of a fresh truth. But hasn't it all been worked out for us? And we take it never knowing, never feeling what it is we take. And that has made us the mechanical things we are. Annie comes running in from the kitchen. <sighs> Starting the sauce for the spaghetti. Fry onions and butter. Three minutes. <sighs> you get no sense of wonder in looking at a clock. Yes, do you know I do? I've always thought that clocks were perfectly wonderful. I never could understand how they could run like that. I suppose you know they run wrong. What do you mean, run wrong? Why, you are running by the mean solar time of Philadelphia, and yet... Here you are in Provincetown, where the sun is a very different matter. You have no direct relation with the sun. That doesn't seem to worry me much. No, it wouldn't worry you, Eddie. You're too perfect a product of a standardized world. <sighs> and meat, brown, seven minutes. Annie measures seven minutes between thumb and finger, holds up this fragment of time made visible and carries it carefully back into the house. That girl will get heart disease. Let her establish a first-hand relation to heat. If she take a look at the food instead of the clock... Trouble is we have to establish a first-hand relation with the spaghetti. If other people have got the wrong dope, you've got to have the wrong dope or be an off-ox. Perfect product of a standardized nation. What's this standardized snake? That's my diagram correcting the sun. Does one correct the sun? Ian, correcting the sun... You see, there are only four days in the year when the apparent time is the same as the average time. Do you mean to tell me the sun is not right with itself? I've tried to explain it to you, Eloise, but you said you could get the feeling of it without understanding it. This curve marks the variation. Here today, you see, the shadow is right, as you call it. That is average. It will be right again here in September and again on December 21st. My birthday. Ian, you mean to say the sun only tells the right sun time four days in the year? It always tells the right sun time. But here, the said right sun time is 15 minutes behind its own average, and here it is 16 minutes ahead. This scale here across the bottom shows you the number of minutes to add or subtract. Add, subtract, then you and your sun are false. No, Eloise, not false, merely intricate. Merely not regular. Machines are regular. You got me to bury the clocks and live by the sun, and now you tell me you have to fix up the sun? It was you who said bury the clocks. I suppose you have to do something to the North Star, too? Yeah, the North Star is not true north. What is true? What is true? 
the mind of man. I think I'd better have a clock. You told me I was to live by the sun. And now, after the clocks are in their graves, what I am to live by is that snake. You are a victim of misplaced confidence, Eloise. Sometimes when one feels things without understanding them, one feels the wrong thing. But there's nothing to worry about. The sun and I can take care of the sun's irregularities. Take heart, Eloise. It's a standardized sun. It's not a blindly accepted sun. Annie comes out again, determined not to be put aside. What'll I do when it rains? You'll use your mind. To tell time by? Ma'am, I think I better find another place. No, don't do that, Annie. You don't know the wonders of your own mind. No, ma'am. The sun is going down. Yes, it goes down. Well, how do we tell time when it's dark? Sine, sole, sileo. Is that saying how we'll know when it's time to go to bed? The doves know when to go to bed. The doves don't go to the pictures. You'll grow, Annie. I'd rather have a clock. You'd rather have a clock than grow. Now, why can't one do both? One doesn't. That's the answer. One merely has the clock. I'd rather be a fool than a machine. I never definitely elected to be either. One can be both without electing either. I want to hear the ticking of a clock. It's a nice thing to hear. The ticking of a clock means the minds of many men. As long as the mind of man has to fix up the facts of nature in order to create ideal time, I feel it's a little more substantial to have the minds of many men. I've told you before, Eloise, you can't do better than accept the things that have been all worked out for you. You hear them, Eloise? You see where this defense of clocks is leading? Ian, I'm terribly worried and a little hurt about the sun. The sun has failed me. The North Star is false. I am here, dearest. Sometimes you seem so much like space. I'm running by the sun, that wobbly sun, and everyone else is running by Philadelphia. I want a little clock to tick to me. You will grow, dearest. There's no use growing. The things you grow to are wrong. I need a tick in time. Very well, then. Dig up the clocks. Now you're talking. Dig up the clocks. And we spend our lives 19 minutes and 20 seconds apart. You mean we'd never get together? Time would lie between us. I refuse to be recaught into a clock world. It was you, Eloise who proposed we give up the clocks and live in this first-hand relation to truth. I didn't know I was proposing a first-hand relation with that snake. It's not a snake. It's a little piece of the long, winding road to truth. It's the discarding of error, the adjustment of fact, and I did it myself. And it puts me on that road. Oh, I know, Eddie and Alice, how you can laugh if you yourself feel no need to feel truth. And you, Eloise... If you don't want to feel time, return to your mean little clock. What is a clock? A clock is the soulless... Oh, the alarm clock! It's going off! Buried alive! Oh no! Oh no! How terrible! Ian, how terrible! Eloise runs to Ian. The alarm clock, being intermittent, goes off again. Eloise? If you listen to the voice of that clock... How bravely it tries to function in its grave. Death struggle. The last gasp. No! Eloise gives another little gasp. The spade is too slow for her. In her desperation, she goes at the grave with her hands. She gets the alarm clock, and as she holds it aloft, the alarm clock rings its triumph. 
ticking. It ticks. It ticks. Oh, it's good to hear the ticking of a clock. As he hears this, Ian, after a moment of terrible silence, goes and unscrews the plate of the sundial. Everyone watches him, afraid to speak. He takes the plate off, holds it above the grave from which the alarm clock has been rescued. Ian, what are you doing? Ian does not answer, but puts the sundial in the alarm clock's grave. Ian, no, no, not that. Not your beautiful sundial. Oh, no, not that. I placed the alarm clock upon the pedestal from which the sundial has been taken. We bow down, as of old, to the mechanical. We will have no other god but it. Annie comes in again from the kitchen. This liver has to soak five minutes. I'll soak it here. Oh, oh, my clock, my clock, oh. Oh, my clock, my clock. Can I take it in the house to finish dinner? Yes, take it away. Beaming, Annie bears it to her kitchen. Eloise now kneels behind the grave of the sundial. Let us leave them alone with their dead. Eddie leads Alice around the corner of the house. They look off down the road. Eloise and Ian sit there on either side of the grave, swaying a little back and forth as those who mourn. I had thought life was going to be so beautiful. It might have been. I suppose it will never be beautiful again. It cannot be beautiful again. Suddenly, with a cry, Eloise gets up and darts to the house. She comes racing back with the alarm clock, snatches the spade, and desperately begins to dig a grave. Ian! Ian, don't you see what I'm doing? I'm willing to have a first-hand relation with the sun, even though it's not regular. But Ian is the one who has lost hope. Eddie and Alice turn to watch the reburial of the alarm clock, and Annie strides in. Where's my alarm clock? I am burying it. Again? And even the sun clock's gone? All is buried. Truth, error. We have returned to the nothing from which we came. This settles it. Now I go. I leave. Eloise, she means it. I suppose she does. But you can't get anybody else. You can't get anybody now. Oh, this is madness. What does any of the rest of it matter if you've lost your cook? Ian, Eloise can't do the work. Peel potatoes, scrub. What's the difference what's true if you have to clean out your own sink? Eloise, stop fussing about the moon and stars. You're losing your cook. Annie comes from the house with a suitcase and a handbag. She marches to the garden, makes a face at the sun, and marches to the rear gate and goes out. Eddie... Go after her. Heavens, has no one a mind? Go after her. What's the good of going after her without a clock? Then get a clock. For heaven's sake, get a clock. Eloise, get off the grave of the alarm clock. Well, there are graves all around you. Dig something else up. No, you call her back. I'll... Alice snatches the spade, which is resting against the sundial pedestal, and she begins to dig. Annie! Oh, Annie! Wait, Annie! Say something to interest her, imbecile. Come home, Annie. Clock, clock. Well, you interest her, and I'll dig. She's most to the bend. Eddie, don't you know how to dig? Eddie, who has been digging with speed and skill, produces the clock from which Eloise's grandmother started housekeeping. He starts to dash off of it. That clock doesn't keep time. Annie hates it. What she wants is the alarm clock. Get off the grave, Eloise. Ian digs up the alarm clock, and with it runs after Anne. Eddie brings the clock he dug up and sets it on the pedestal. Then he looks down at the disturbed graves. Here's a watch. And here's another watch. Quite a valuable piece of ground. 
What's that? The cuckoo. I suppose it's lonesome. Cuckoo? In that grave? The cuckoo we gave you? You buried our wedding present? Well, I must say, the people who try to lead the right kind of lives always do the wrong thing. I am not accustomed to having my wedding presents put in graves. Will you please dig it up, Eddie? It will do very well on the mantle in our library. And my back nearly broken digging for your cook. Annie and Ian appear and march across from the gates to the house. Annie triumphantly bearing her alarm clock. Ian, a captive at her chariot wheels, following with Annie's suitcase and string bag. A moment later, Ian comes out from the house, looks at each dug-up thing, and stands by the grave of the sundial. Mrs. Stubbs returns. Oh, Mr. Joyce, I've come to see your sun clock again. Mr. Stubbs said he'll not be run from Philadelphia. He says, if you have got the time straight from the sun... Oh, do you take it in at night? The sundial lies buried there. You've buried the sun clock and dug up all the wrong clocks? Mrs. Joyce, is that how a smart man's appreciated... What did you bury it for, Mr. Joyce? It cannot live in this world where no one wants truth or feeling about truth. This is a world for clocks. Well, I want truth, and so does Johnny Stubbs. If you'll excuse my saying so, Mr. Joyce, after you've made a thing that's right, you oughtn't to bury it, even if there is nobody to want it. And now that I want it... Mrs. Stubbs takes the spade and begins to dig up the sundial. Ian cannot resist this and helps her. He lifts the sundial, she brushes it off, and he fits it onto its place on the pedestal. Now, there it is, Mr. Joyce, and as good as if it had never seen the grave. And there's time for it to make its shadow before this sun is gone. The simple mind has beauty. I want to be simpler. Now, what time would you say it was, Mr. Joyce? I would say it was 20 minutes of seven, Mrs. Stubbs. And you others would say it was 20 minutes past six. Well, I say, let them that want sun time have sun time, and them that want tick time have tick time. It's dinner time! <laughs> You have been listening to Mendocino Theatre Company's reading of Tickless Time by Susan Glassville and George Cram Cook, featuring Scott Menzies as Ian, Laura Pinu as Eloise, Pamela W. Allen as Mrs. Stubbs, Lori LaPaul as Annie, Ken Krauss as Eddie, and Laurel Livesey as Alice Knight, with narration by Sarah Rose, sound production and design by Ken Krauss. The play was directed by Lori LaPaul, who is with me right now on Zoom. Hi, Pamela. Hi, Lori. Pamela, I had a, a question for you. Because the theater is closed because of the pandemic and just for safety protocols, um, I think it's wonderful that you thought of using the radio as a venue to bring entertainment to people and to keep the theater very much in the public eye. 
And I love that you thought of the one minute plays. You know, actually, uh, Sandra Hawthorne, one of our founding members, was the one that put this bug in my ear. She had an idea about possibly having a quote about Shakespeare appear on the radio every day, you know, a daily quote, which was a great idea, but a little beyond our abilities at that point in time. But she originally contacted Alicia, the program director at KZYX. Alicia was really interested in doing something with this. And we kind of decided that we would do just a few spots a week and That became this one-minute radio theater. We only had two minutes. That has been loads of fun, and it's been a really wonderful way to include people that wouldn't normally be able to be part of our theater company. Really, anybody can write a one-minute play. And for everyone out there who's listening, please submit your one-minute play. We'd love to produce it. Um, they are a lot of fun. And that led to, you know, Casey Wex also had a few one-hour spots. So we grabbed them and decided to do readings of plays that are in the public domain. So I started looking for one-act plays from the early 20th century and just found some gems, like all of Susan Glaspell's plays and... Um, We've we've really been having fun with this, and I think it's a great way to connect with our audiences, with new audiences, and also with each other, because we've yes. really missed being on the stage. Absolutely. And it's just so much fun to work with everybody, and we've got great actors tonight. Uh, yeah. So, Lori, I think you have some questions for these other actors. Yeah, I do. I, I think people love to to hear, you know, how the actors work and in getting into characters, so... Uh, I think I'll start with uh, Scott. Hey, Scott, I have a question for you. What did you resonate with in your character, in the character of Ian? Were were there points where you felt like you were like this character? One of the reasons I really liked playing Ian in this play was because I really resonated with his desire to, as he says, work directly with worlds, to have that personal connection with the sun through his sundial. It really reminded me of when I was a Peace Corps volunteer living in Nepal. In a little village in eastern Nepal in the middle Himalayas, there was no indoor plumbing. Everything required going outside a lot. And so during that time in my life, living in that very small village, away from technology, away from electricity, away from all that stuff, I myself started feeling like I had a really, a much greater connection with the moon and the lunar cycles and just being more present with it when I was going from the kitchen to my bedroom or to the latrine or whatever. But the other thing was near our town, I was in a little town called Sarangdanda in Nepal. The closest market town was a place called Saptami. The way you knew the market was coming through was because actually of the moon phase. The word Sat in Nepali means seven. So Saptami was the seventh place on the market's route. And what that basically meant was that when the moon was in its seventh day after the new moon and seventh day after the full moon, you could expect to see the traveling market in Saptami Bazaar. You know, it was a big deal for the village. Everybody would get dressed up and go into the bazaar to shop for things that they normally couldn't get. And so it got to the point where I could look at the moon and I could be, oh, it looks like the market's going to either be tomorrow or the next day. 
And that brought me in greater contact with the lunar cycles twice a month when I'm thinking about when this market's going to be. And I just really enjoyed that. Playing Ian really gave me an opportunity to remember that, think about that, and kind of bring to the play to what Ian was trying to do with his sundial in terms of maintaining contact with truth, maintaining contact with real time. Yeah. Oh, thanks, Scott. Um, Laura, I have a question for you. Is it more difficult to play a somewhat comic character or a somewhat comic role than a serious role or a tragic role? I do think it is. Um, It's hard not to be self-conscious about that and to just let it kind of be light and let it be natural and somehow I can summon more angst and dread and tragedy (laughs) than, you know, just kind of a snappy that snappy thing. I think I'm probably a little bit more of a serious person in real life. So yeah, that's, it's, I think comedy is hard. Yeah. Oh, you find it more difficult. Well, I Mm -hmm. think you did a great job on, on, uh, on Eloise. That was, that was lovely. So she has, she has a very wide range of emotions and she She does, (laughs) she goes through them all and back again. And that, that's fun. That was fun. I enjoyed her, um, her, her trip. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they had a lot of very comic rejoinders to each other. It was, it was great. Laurel, I had a question uh, for you. If you're playing a character that's maybe out of time or really different from yourself, Laurel, how do you find a way to connect with that character? Um, that's a good question. I mean, context is everything because I don't actually believe that any character is that far outside of myself as an actor i think finding the the aspects that connect to what i'm familiar with are the key to finding the character but i do think that if there are things that the character does that i wouldn't do in my own life or i don't think i would do in my own life the key is to find what would drive me to do that i don't know Mm. if that answers your question but um, yeah no i think that's really clear thank you Uh, sarah i wanted to ask you because you've played both parts in a play but you've i think this is the second or third time you've done the narrator part is that right yeah it's the second time what's different for you playing a narrator part although we try to make it part of the story like making it a storyteller what's different for you to play the narrator as as opposed to playing a a character I mean, I don't know, like you're really telling the story, which sometimes feels like a big responsibility. you got to let everybody know what's going on, especially in radio plays like this, because they can't see what people are doing. So that's your job to let them know. Yeah. It's a little hard sometimes not to just get like swept up in being very like flat and like, this is exactly what's going on and remembering to like make it lively and fun too. You, you did a great job because in fact, stage directions are usually rather flat. Please move to the left. This is what happens now, ladies and gentlemen. And you just took it and ran with it and made it part of the the whole story. And it was easy to visualize what the characters did. So that was was great. We have Ken. I know that uh, last time uh, when I spoke with Ken uh, at the last radio show, Ken was talking about how it is to do the technical aspects of a radio play because he's editing He's filling in all the sound cues, which is an incredible amount of work. Ken, <laughs> I don't know. That's a question say. for me. <laughs> One of the things I find too, and this was something that uh, came up as we were rehearsing, was the idea that I really wish there were some way to be able to put the sound effects into the text as we're doing the recording, because that helps actors. But then 
I've also been doing training as a voiceover uh, artist, and there's a thing there called wildlining where you, you don't even have someone to talk to. And it's really difficult at times. You have to come up with, like Laura was saying, the motivation that you have for a character. You know, it has to come in the context. Without the context, you've got to fill in the blanks. And that's been something that uh, has been helpful to me in doing this kind of thing because I'll sometimes get a audition for a commercial read and it's, I'm talking to my wife, but my wife's not there. You know, I just have the script. It's something that has given me the ability to be able to do that. I think better. That's been a real help to me. Uh, I think that our being able to do something like this on the radio at a time when people are looking for entertainment and where we're all trying to find a way to be creative within the context of the limitations that we've had imposed upon us, it's really a kind of a blessing and it gives us something that we can kind of turn into something that hopefully people will find some happiness with. So. I hope so too, Ken. I think that's beautifully said because it makes me think of when my parents listened to the radio and -hmm. it was really cool. You just sit around the radio, maybe you're eating something or having a cup of tea or I, God knows what. Ovaltine. Ovaltine. Yeah, okay. We used to have Ovaltine. She will thank you, actors. Well, thank you, Lori, for directing all of these plays. Thank you, Lori. You have been listening to Mendocino Theatre Company's reading of Tickless Time by Susan Glassbill and George Cram Cook. For more information, go to mendocinotheatre.org or email us at mtc at mcn.org. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening. Thank you.